Oh God, you are our help. You are our fortress and deliverer. You are our source of comfort. You're the only reliable anchor that we have in creation. And so we commit our friends, our beloved coworkers, the Grudiers to you this morning and ask that you would care for them as a good shepherd, that you would tend them, that you would watch over them, and that you would um, just in, superintend all of their interactions in the time that Kathy has left. We look to you now with hope, firm, stubborn hope in the resurrection, and we pray that that hope would strengthen the Grudiers even now. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thomas Hogg was a Scottish pastor who died in the year 1692. And before Thomas Hogg passed away, he told his congregation that he wanted to be buried right outside the front door of the church. Now, he wanted to be buried right outside the front door of the church because he wanted to serve as a silent sentinel in the generations to come. He wanted to stand against the temptation that the church may have in the future of hiring an unworthy or ungodly pastor to replace him, whether the next one or generations into the future. And apparently, this inscription remains on the stone outside of that church building. This stone shall bear witness against the parishioners of Kiltern if they bring an ungodly minister in here. <laughs> I'd love to have met Thomas Hogg. A person's last words say a lot about what's important to them. We know what was important to Thomas Hogg. The narrator of First and Second Samuel is giving us his last words in chapters 21 through 24. It's his conclusion. It's his epilogue of these two books of the Bible. And in these two books, he's doing this. He's focusing in on what is the center and most important thing that he wants to communicate through First and Second Samuel. And that is that God alone is our deliverer. So we began the epilogue with a failure of a king, King Saul, who took his wrath out on the Gibeonites. We will end Second Samuel next week looking at David's failure to count and take a census of the fighting men of Israel. So on the edges of this epilogue, we have a king's failure. Just in from that, we have mighty men failing to deliver permanent peace to God's people. We have a failure of the mighty men, both in the wars that David fought against the Philistines as these mighty men of Israel fight these giants and defeat them only to have the Philistines attack again. And then as we saw, as we'll see this morning, we have mighty men served David faithfully over the course of his life, but again, they're fighting battles repeatedly because they cannot provide the permanent peace. And so all of 2 Samuel is coming toward the middle, David's song that we preached through last Sunday and David's last words that we, that we come to this morning. And it all points to God as the deliverer of his people, not kings who will fail, not mighty men who will fail, but God who alone is our deliverer. That's the entire emphasis of the narrator's conclusion. Now, as we come to David's last words this morning, we find that they're actually not David's last words, but God's last words. And we find a similar thing. We find this chiastic structure, this concentric circles that begin with David discussing, discussing his leadership and end with David discussing sinful leaders. And then you come in from those edges and you find David introducing God's last words and then David announcing God's work. And in the very middle, 
For its emphasis, God speaks. And here's what God says. The people flourish when the king rules justly. The people flourish when their king rules justly. Human leaders fail us. Human leaders can't help but fail us. Whether they be presidents or elders or bosses or teachers or parents or husbands or coaches or even older siblings, even godly leaders, godly leaders like David fail us. Isn't this a primary lesson that we've taken away from this study of the life of David? David, a man after God's own heart, David, a man that God honors, David, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, still manages to fail. David is a man, in fact, whose failures as a leader end up rising as high as his stunning successes. And in that we can take comfort because God says, David was still a man after my own heart. I pray that this passage this morning motivates us to do two things. The first is to imitate King Jesus where we have some measure of leadership and authority so that those under us may flourish. And then secondly, to wait for King Jesus to reign in all his future glory where we will flourish forevermore. So imitate and wait are the two main points of application this morning. Now let's begin looking at David's final speech, verses 1 through 3b, God's word is steadfast. Now at first blush, this seems to be an arrogant introduction, a self-serving introduction, but instead it is David's humble swan song. This is his final word to the people of Israel, and I hope we'll see that it's focused on the Lord's mercy in his life. Look at verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 23. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle or utterance of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. David wants to introduce himself to us as the recipient of God's gracious intervention in his life. Look at what he says. First, he says, the oracle or the utterance of the man who was raised on high. Who raised David on high? God did. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. David was raised on high by the Lord. The second thing he says is, I'm the anointed of the God of Jacob. 1 Samuel 16, 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. He is the anointed of the God of Jacob. The third thing he says is he is the sweet psalmist of Israel. David wrote at least 73 of the 150 psalms we have. David was committed to worshiping the Lord. He understood the powerful connection between compelling music and true words. And he knew how music helped words to stick. Which, by the way, is why we try to sing songs that are both biblically rich and musically compelling. It's not enough to sing true things. We want to sing true things that are musically compelling so that the words stick to our hearts. David's introduction puts the spotlight on the Lord. God did this thing. God has raised me up. God is the one who lifted me on high. And God be praised for all that he's done. David as a leader may have failed, but God did not fail. God is faithful and he's trustworthy and he's able. Look at verse 2. 
The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. And let's pause there. Repetition can increase understanding and repetition can emphasize the point. David says, essentially, have I made myself clear? God is about to speak. God is about to speak to his people. What you are about to hear are God's very words that he gave to me. Now, the young preacher once thought that repetition would help him when he lost his place in the sermon. The young preacher was preaching and said, Behold, I come. And then his mind went completely blank. He thought, maybe if I just go back and start again, it'll come back to me. And he says for the second time, Behold, I come. And still nothing. His mind is blank. And with no other ideas, he just tried it a third time. And he leaned onto the pulpit and he said with all his might, Behold, I come. And at that moment, the pulpit broke underneath his weight. And he fell off the front of the platform into the lap of the woman on the front row. And he stood up profusely apologizing, completely embarrassed by what he had just done. And the woman took responsibility. She said, no, no, I should have been prepared. You told me three times you were coming. (laughs) I doubt very much that's a true story. But four times, David emphasizes the point that God is speaking, that God has something to say. And God's word is a declaration of his action. God's word is a declaration of what he's going to do. And it's as good as done. In 2 Samuel 7, God declared a promise to David, a covenant that he makes with David. And three things happen in that covenant. First, David, I'm going to make your name great. And here we are still talking about King David. David, I'm going to make a safe place for my people where they can rest from their enemies. And David, a son will be born to you, a descendant who will reign on an eternal throne over an everlasting kingdom. That's the promise, the covenant that God makes with his servant David. And David is proclaiming, you can trust God's words. He is committed to what he said and he will accomplish all that he said. Cherrydale, you can stake your life on God's word. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 Peter says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And here's the contrast. For all flesh, all human is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass, what does it do? It withers. The flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word the good news that was preached to you. The promises that God holds out in his word, all of them will outlast the pain and pleasures of this life. The promises of human beings will fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And so with the psalmist, we can say in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, 
It enlightens the eyes. The word of the Lord is active in our lives. It revives souls. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. This is why we devote ourselves to the word alone every day in the quietness of our life with Jesus. And together, when we gather to worship, we insist that the word is preached and sung and read And we long for this word to go to people groups that have no access to the Bible in their own language. And we commit to stand firm according to this word in the face of all the pressure that the world around us may throw. God's word is steadfast. Stake your life on it. But secondly, God's king is righteous. That's what the Lord wants to say through David. This is what David's speech has built toward. Look at the end of verse 3 of 2 Samuel 23. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. When a ruler, a king, a leader is constrained by two things, He does good or she does good to the people under them. The first thing a leader must do is rule justly. Rule as a righteous one. Meaning God's standards for right and for wrong constrain and guide that leader. They are not constrained by the world's sense of what is right and wrong. They are guided instead by God's eternal word. They make decisions and conduct their lives and discipline their thoughts and treat others as God would. The second thing a ruler or a leader must do is rule in the fear of the Lord. You fear a campfire and it causes you to properly relate to that campfire. You make sure that the fire is well contained. You're careful about the flames. You're purposeful about tending this fire. And when you fear the campfire correctly, when you relate to the campfire as you should, you are most satisfied by it. You're warmed by it. You can cook on it. You can get lost in deep thoughts as you watch the flames dance. To fear the Lord is to think about Him and to relate to Him accurately according to what He said about Himself in His Word. We are humbled and we are awed by His greatness and His glory and His offer of mercy. And we are gripped and we are comforted. We are conscious of the fact that God judges sin and that God forgives sinners. And this all happens in the life and death of Jesus. And as we lead others in the fear of the Lord, we are constrained and guided by God. We don't wander from the fact that we are accountable to Him, that He is both a holy God and a merciful God. And I am accountable to this one, and I am gratefully connected to him. When a ruler or a king or a leader rules justly, righteously, and in the fear of God, good things can happen to people. People can prosper and flourish and thrive. Look at verse 4. He dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. God says, when, 
A ruler rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, righteous and fearing God. He dawns on people like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Like sun and rain is a righteous, God-fearing leader to those they lead. Behold the warmth and the light. Behold the dusty ground coming to life. Abuses of authority abound from pastors to presidents to parents to doctors to coaches and teachers. We have examples of abusive authority all around us. And now, perhaps more than ever, there is room for people to correctly confront perversions of authority. And that's good. And we must guard against overcorrecting and drawing the conclusion that authority is bad. God says authority properly constrained by righteousness, properly constrained and guided by the fear of God is very good. Passive leaders who won't chart a course, who won't challenge and guide, abdicate and are no use to those they lead. Instead, leaders must lead fearing the Lord, pursuing righteousness, and giving a context where people can flourish. Now, if we've been hurt by a leader, our suspicion of leaders is understandable. But it's not a destination that we should let ourselves be comfortable with. Instead, let God's vision of leadership restore hope. Perfect leaders are not to be found on this side of Jesus' kingdom, but pray for leaders like this. Leaders who don't lead for their own flourishing, but for the flourishing of those they lead. Find leaders committed to righteousness. Leaders who will sin, but leaders with hearts like David, marked by spiritual humility. At the end of the day, longing to please the Lord. Find leaders committed to fear Him. Leaders who are willing to be accountable to the Lord and to fellow leaders and to those they lead. Leaders constrained and guided by God's word. Leaders committed to build God's kingdom, not their own. We can't let abuses of authority erase or neuter the good news of authority that God says exists. God's kingdom is everlasting. God's kingdom is everlasting. Verses 5 and 7. David wants us to see how what God has just said fulfills God's promise of a righteous king. David is not describing himself here. I don't think that's David's purpose of putting these things together. Rather, David is saying, look past me to the one who will come. Look at verse 5. He's applying what God has just said. For does not my house stand so with God? My house. Does not my house stand so with God? For God has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. For will God not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? He's taking God's word about a righteous king and a flourishing people and he's applying it for us. He's pointing beyond himself and declaring that God will fulfill his word. It's steadfast and it will come through a future king. My house, not myself, stands with God. God has made an everlasting covenant with me. Back to 2 Samuel 7. 
When your days are fulfilled, God says to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish your offspring's kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, some of this is fulfilled by David's son Solomon, but it is not an eternal king. It is not an eternal throne. In Psalm 89, 29, we read, God says, I will establish his offspring, David's, forever and his throne as the days of heaven. There is an everlasting kingdom that's coming and it's in fulfillment to the promises that God made to David. And David says, look at what God said about authority and look past me to this descendant who's coming. What a gift David gives us. He helps us to see that the ultimate flourishing of God's people will come through David's descendant. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and, and of, over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Do you see it? Isaiah 9 tells us that this one is coming who will reign on David's throne. Isaiah ends this section by saying the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God will do this. God's word is steadfast and he will do this. His kingdom is everlasting and he will do this. God's promises are ordered in all things and secure. People flourish when they live reconciled to God guided by his word and empowered by his spirit. That's how we flourish. We flourish, we humans flourish when we live under God's authority. The more we enjoy God and are satisfied in God, the more we flourish. The further God's kingdom purposes and his kingdom aims and goals, the further they make themselves into our hearts, the more we will flourish as his people. Because we're not building our kingdom, we're building his everlasting kingdom. The more that God's kingdom standards for righteousness, what is right and what is wrong, the further they drive deep into our hearts, the more we will flourish. Because he knows us. And he knows how happy we are because of obedience. When we flourish, we live in meaningful community with others. We're unleashed to make disciples. We exercise leadership in God's creation and we enjoy the beauty that he has created. This is where peace and happiness and wholeness and shalom come. When we are living, satisfied in God, we flourish. Our generation tells us that to flourish, we need to follow our heart. If you want to flourish, follow your heart. Do you let the world around conform to your sense of who you are? If you want to flourish, follow your heart. That's what our generation is telling us. But our eternal God says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wick, wicked. Don't follow your heart, God says. 
Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So don't follow your heart. In fact, God says you need a new heart. I'm offering to remove the heart of stone and to give you a heart of flesh so that you can flourish, so that you can relate to me as you were intended to relate to me. We need to resist this message of our culture strongly. We need to turn away from making sense of ourselves on our own and let God set the the direction for our hearts and who we think we are and what we ought to be doing in the world. The flourishing that every human being longs for is not found in ourselves. It is found outside of ourselves in God and who God thinks of us. And the future is bleak if we reject his heart and his ways. Look at verse 6 and 7. But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. God's kingdom is everlasting in that it can withstand this kind of opposition from worthless fellows by wicked men. These leaders are described by David as worthless. They are literally good for nothings. They staunchly oppose God's heart and God's ways. They're also dangerous. Rather than the sun and rain causing plants and flowers to bloom and flourish, these men are like thorns. They should be grabbed with iron and the shaft of a spear, not with bare hands. And instead of causing people to flourish, these men are consumed with fire. You can't flourish in this life apart from God. But when you turn to Him, flourishing is found. And in this life, the flourishing will be shadowy. Because even when we turn from sin to God, we still struggle with sin. And the leaders who lead us struggle with sin. But a righteous king is coming. And here are the two points of final application for us. Imitate and wait. Imitate and wait. Jesus rules now in creation. Though he's seated at the right hand of the the Father, he rules now in creation by his word, by his spirit, and through his people. So we aim to lead and pray for leaders who imitate King Jesus in creation, ones who are constrained and guided by the, by the powerful fear of the Lord. When government leaders imitate King Jesus, those they lead can flourish. If you're a Christian with authority in local, state, or national government, you can imitate King Jesus. Romans 13 says you can help to establish law and policy that protect and honor human life. You can punish wrongdoers with sensible policy and law. And that you can provide good, sensible order in society so that those under the authority of that governing structure have the opportunity to flourish. You can imitate King Jesus in your role. When elders imitate King Jesus, they lead churches selflessly so that the church family flourishes. This is what Peter's getting at in 1 Peter 5. 
He tells elders as a fellow elder to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not exercising oversight for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, when the righteous king appears to firmly establish his everlasting kingdom, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. When elder influence is unforced and joyful, when elders are committed to sound doctrine and devoted to prayer, a church family can flourish pursuing the work of ministry together, stable, secure, joyful, earnest, unified. Members can do the work of making disciples, using their gifts, gather joyfully for worship and fellowship. When elders imitate King Jesus, when husbands imitate King Jesus, they lead their wives by sacrificing for them like Jesus sacrificed for the church. In Ephesians 5.25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Husbands don't swagger. They don't smother. And neither do they abdicate through passivity. Husbands should use their strength to lay their lives down They should joyfully assume the weight of responsibility. And they use the Bible to bring encouragement and spiritual help. And when husbands imitate King Jesus, wives can flourish as a result. When parents imitate King Jesus, children can flourish without exasperation or frustration. Ephesians 6 verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If parents rule righteously and fear the Lord correctly, children can flourish in homes. Parents take their own sin more seriously than they take their children's sin. Parents that don't show favoritism, parents who are consistent and Bible-saturated, parents who are attentive and invested, We have godly expectations for our children. Imagine how children in our homes would flourish in this righteous, joyful, stable, secure, loving home where Jesus reigns and parents imitate him. When bosses imitate King Jesus through righteousness and fear of the Lord, employees can flourish without fear. Ephesians 6, 9, masters do the same to them And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Bosses and those they lead have the same master in heaven who shows no partiality and who sees all things. And when bosses remember that God is master of us all, bosses lead by example, not threat. And employees rejoice and can earnestly and diligently work as if they were working for God himself, using their gifts to their full potential, joyfully striving to the work that they've been called to. 
Now, these principles can be extended far beyond these categories to coaches, teachers, project leads, siblings watching younger siblings, camp counselors, team captains, even kids with pets. We could imitate the future reign of King Jesus in any sphere of influence and leadership that he has called us to. We can experience an imperfect foreshadowing of the joyful kingdom to come. Imitate him where you've been given leadership and wait for him. Because even the sweetest foretaste possible, the most righteous, God-fearing leader, if he's human or she's human, will fail. And the sweetest foretaste possible of human leadership will not compare with the joy and the glory of Jesus' kingdom. And so while we imitate Jesus, we also wait for him. In Isaiah 40, verse 9, we read, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Wait for the king. Behold, he's coming. Wait for the time when he will tend his flock like a shepherd. And we, his people, will flourish when our king rules justly. Isaiah 65 pictures this future time. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. O church family, God's word is steadfast. He will fulfill his promises. The righteous king is coming, and until he comes, let's imitate him. And while we imitate his leadership, let's wait for him. His kingdom is everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your work in our midst. We thank you for the promises of your steadfast word. We thank you that our work in this world does not depend on our own strength or ability. It depends wholly on our dependence on your spirit. Lord Jesus, thank you for making salvation possible. Thank you for sending your spirit to take the work that you accomplished and apply it to our hearts through faith. Thank you for making us alive and new. Thank you for our new hearts. Thank you for a people to gather with, a people to fellowship with, a people to make disciples alongside. Fill our hearts. Persuade us that Jesus' everlasting kingdom is coming. And until it does, we can imitate him. And to the degree that we do, 
people will flourish. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.